Hello and welcome to the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson, I'm the founder of Stack, and this week's episode features Lin Yi Ryan, the editor and founder of Mold Magazine, speaking about designing the future of food. I spoke to Lin Yi at the Edge Editorial Design Conference in March this year, where she gave a totally fascinating presentation about the ideas and motivations in making her magazine. I wanted to dig a bit deeper into some of the things that she said during that presentation, so we met up the following day and recorded this conversation between other sessions. We delivered Mold Magazine to Stack subscribers in December 2017, and I was really pleased to be able to drop it into people's homes in the run-up to Christmas with all of its fetishization of food and traditional feasting. As you'll hear, Mold really wants people to think again about the things that they eat, and it takes a deliberately provocative outsider's perspective to challenge the sort of things you'd ordinarily expect to see in a food magazine. If you were a Stack subscriber at the end of last year, you'll have seen all this for yourself, and I hope that Lin Yi can provide more context on the stories that caught your eye back then. And if you're not a Stack subscriber, you'll be able to get a primer on this extraordinary magazine. If you like the sound of it, you can buy a copy at thisismold.com. And of course, you should also be a Stack subscriber. So go to stackmagazines.com and use the code podcast to save 10% off our regular prices. Okay, that's enough of the sales messages. Let's get to the good bit with Lin Yi Ryan speaking at the Edge Conference in March this year. Uh, all right, so Lin Yi, thank you very much for coming and talking. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. Uh, Stack subscribers will obviously know all about mold. But for anyone who is listening to this and somehow they're not a Stack subscriber, tell us what the magazine's all about. Sure, Mold Magazine is about designing the future of food. So each issue actually looks at a different theme around how designers might feed 9 billion people by the year 2050. Okay, and uh, uh, we're getting a hint of this already, but why is this an important issue to be talking about now? So a couple of years ago, the United Nations put out a white paper where they basically warned us that if we continue eating and drinking the way that we do today, that we won't actually be able to feed the 9 billion people that will be populating our planet by the year 2050. And so I believe that designers with their human-centered process, their ability to communicate ideas and um, you know, they're kind of training to frame the right questions are like the right people to tackle this very complex question. Uh, and so this is so, so like having read the magazine, there are several different approaches to this. So the, there's the high tech approach where you innovate a way of doing something differently or there's a, a much more low tech cultural approach where you look at the things we eat and why we eat them and try to rethink that instead of inventing our way out of it just just think differently about it what is it that first switched you onto this whole genre or subgenre? sure so i am a design journalist and i was traveling around the world to uh, attend really amazing design festivals and design fairs and at the time this was around 2011 um, I started seeing some really interesting food design projects that were primarily coming out of 
either academic institutions, so a lot of student work, or they were kind of coming out as like concepts from large corporations that create appliances, for example. And at the time, nobody was really writing about it because if you're a design publication in 2011, you're really focused on like furniture and lighting and interior objects. And food publications really didn't know what to do with a food design project. They had no real basis for explaining or understanding what these things were. And so they were kind of pushed aside. And so because of this, I was like, well, I am just obsessed with food. Um, I had I was an independent food I had an independent food business at the time. Um, my mother's a nutritionist and I'm a design journalist so I'm pretty well situated to actually talk about these things. So I decided to create a platform that was like a personal project and create an archive of really interesting food design projects. Um, and from there um, about 2000 no, actually 2015-2016 I started thinking a little bit more about the impact of what I was doing and I realized that having a digital archive of uh, projects just really wasn't enough to engage designers in this really complicated huge question and so that's when I decided to start thinking about putting together a print magazine that would explore these topics that are so wide-ranging as you mentioned in depth uh, issue by issue. And, I mean, print is one output for that, but uh, it could equally have taken several other different courses. What was it about a print magazine that is interesting to you? I think that um, designers of all shapes and stripes and colors love artifacts and physical things. And so there just didn't seem to be a better way to communicate directly with the audience that we were trying to engage with than putting out a really compelling, engaging, and beautiful print magazine. And um, I think designers in general are kind of creatures of habit. Like when you talk to designers, they always talk about traveling and like going to some design bookstore or like you know, a haunt that had like amazing, you know, design books. And so I think that just in order to get in front of this audience and really kind of say hello and like take us home, like and really take time to think about these questions, print just made the most sense. Uh, there's a, a magazine called Anxi, which is a, a mental health magazine. And they talk about, so the guys who started that met working at Medium. And so in a way, the natural thing would be for them to have made something digital. And actually the reason that they went to print is because they saw it as this Trojan horse. For They didn't want to speak to the people who read mental health magazines. They wanted to make a thing that was just so beautiful and lovely that you pick it up and you're halfway through before you realize that you're reading a mental health magazine. Is there, is there some kind of like, you know, you, you're using print as a way of getting this into new readers' hands? Absolutely, and I think that the design of the magazine by Eric Hu and Matt Sang um, are very much like this kind of Trojan horse idea because they are just incredible, uh, amazingly talented designers. And so they just make beautiful things. And so here we are talking about something that is quite complex. Um, it, it can be mired in a lot of like statistics and like also like you know sometimes when we talk about the future of food it's kind of uh, packaged in this kind of guilt uh, language and so to kind of strip away all of those things um, to create something that's just a beautiful artifact but 
really grappling with very provocative ideas, I think, um, makes it a really appealing uh, product for anybody just to pick up and just because first of all you just want to pick it up and page through it it's a beautifully glossy magazine um, the cover uh, of the last two issues or our first two issues is pretty provocative like you kind of don't really know what's going to be in, be- in between the pages and then it says the future of food so you're like wait a second there's not any pictures of food in here what does this even mean and so I think all of these things in combination um, really make for something that's really engaging and, and I like this idea of this Trojan horse and I think I, I can totally understand their perspective on that. So the, I, I, it's interesting that you mention, you know, there's no beautiful food photography in there. You're, you're making a food magazine. It's very definitely a food magazine, but you're deliberately not doing any of the things that you normally do as a food magazine. Like you're, you're not trying to make people hungry or want to buy something to be able to cook a thing or, you know. Yeah. You, I think that contemporary food publications um, have a tendency to fetishize food and they're really selling food as kind of a status symbol or food as uh, something that you consume um, as, you know, like, yeah, it's a fetish, it's like foodie culture. And, um, you know, I would argue that we actually do have beautiful food photography, but maybe not in um, the sense that you might be familiar with. And so um, one of the things that I think is really important and powerful is that we actually chose to work with artists and writers that are within our network. So um, Matt and Eric uh, come from the worlds of fashion and architecture and design. Um, I come from the world of design and um, you know music and lifestyle. And so between the three of us and also my co-editor Johnny who actually comes more squarely from the world of food but the science piece of food um, the four of us were really able to leverage this really interesting network of people who um, don't traditionally get uh, play in a food magazine and because we're kind of all like a little bit of a band of outsiders we were able to make a publication a magazine that really doesn't play by the rules of uh, what most people would come to expect from a food magazine. And actually it doesn't play by the rules of what you'd expect of a magazine. The, so, you know, the, there are some quite subtle things that have a really profound effect. So, the, so sometimes you'll have standfirsts where the standfirst text is smaller than the body copy. And that is, you know, so what in a way? But actually reading that page you're so used to seeing a stand first as being in bigger text because it's more important and you read it first. It has a really disruptive effect. Yeah, we really want to engage people and engage designers and people like you who love magazines. And so there is this kind of moment with the way that the design and the content work together that we're really asking a lot of the readers to actually like lean in a little bit, to take a second read, to get a little bit closer. And I think that sense of intimacy is something that we really wanted to cultivate. And that's something that you can't really get um, in a digital experience. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, things that you talked about yesterday which I felt like got the biggest like immediate, well, I guess it got a bit of a nervous laugh from the audience, but also like I, I think it, it hit home, was when you were showing some of the photography from like a typical food magazine, and here's a bunch of white people really enjoying their food. Yeah. 
eating avocado toast. <laughs> Sorry, that's the line. White, <laughs> white, people, white people eating avocado toast. There you go. Now, so you, so you are a woman of color. Mm-hmm. And so that carries a, you know, you, you saying that carries a, a power of its own. How much is this something that underpins why you want to make this magazine in the first place? I wouldn't say it's a driving consideration, but I do recognize as a woman of color working in this space how important it is to also take a very um, global perspective on what food means. Like, I think that, again, a lot of contemporary food magazines really um, speak to a very one-note audience. It's kind of like the 1%. And I am very privileged. I live in New York City. Um, I'm educated, but I am a child of immigrants. And I think that being um, multicultural, uh, understanding that there are uh, cultures and people beyond the borders of where I live um, has always been very critical to my identity and my understanding of the world. And so for that reason, I think we really make a point to try to um, you know, shine a spotlight and give space to voices that may not typically be featured in a food magazine. So for example, um, you know, when people talk about the future of food, a lot of times people are, are like, well, does that mean we're going to have to eat insects? And there's always this sense of anxiety around that because it's a sense of othering like that's not something that I do that's something that other people do and so dirty people yeah dirty people yeah like people that like are from places that you know like maybe I'll visit once but I don't want to live there you know and there's this kind of attitude um, of othering that I always find very I find it very concerning and so for issue two instead of kind of exploring this um, giving space to being like the anxiety of eating insects we actually ask designers who live and work and are from uh, these places around the world and who have a sense of the kind of gastronomic roots of eating insects to design eating tools for harvesting, preparing, cooking, and actually eating insects. And so instead of focusing on like, you know, a recipe for how you can eat this insect in your own home, we're like, let's talk about how beautiful and forward thinking and how do we actually um, embrace this culinary delight in a contemporary way. And I think that that kind of very tiny shift um, can have a really big impact because the reality is that it's not about eating insects. It's about diversifying what's on the plate. Um, it's about all of us embracing ingredients that um, are going to be beyond like the 20 things that we normally eat. The, that insect story, I think, is what well, is one of the ones that has stuck with me the longest from the magazine. And I think that I think partly it's because it's a really clever idea uh, of turning it around and making this eating insects like you know kind of positioning it in this like fetishized mm-hmm. way of like you know it being a beautiful thing but also you just did it so well like the you know you, so you presumably commissioned designers to create these pieces then commissioned craftspeople to actually make them and then commissioned a photographer to take these beautiful pictures i mean that's really difficult and expensive to do um 
I, it felt like something very worthwhile to do. And um, we worked differently with each of the designers. And um, basically, on our end, as an editor, I just did research on what regions we would be interested in covering. And thankfully, I have relationships in different places where I, I was able to actually reach out to people to recommend people to work with. And so um, I think that it's, it's one of the things that working on the magazine has taught me, especially with these commissioned objects, is just um, how global our design community is. And when you have an interesting concept, um, you know, these designers really like put a lot of energy and effort into creating these objects. Um, some of them actually commissioned uh, craftspeople within their uh, geography to actually make these objects. So for example, Preziata, which is ba they're based, they're a design studio based in Sardinia. They worked with Sardinian craftsmen to make this beautiful cheese board and actually this um, amazing cheese knife that, uh, it's like a pocket knife that's very kind of traditional and very, um, it's, it's kind of a, a, a piece of design that is very common in Sardinia. For every Sardinian man is going to have a pocket knife, basically. But they designed this very specific cheese knife that is in the shape of the fly, the wings of the fly that um, basically, so in Sardinia they eat this thing called kashimarsu. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's basically a maggot-infested cheese. It's so disgusting. <laughs> I, I love, so uh, Kira, who's uh, one of the designers, she mentioned that during the season, because it's only a season, it's, you don't, can't do it in the winter because the maggots die because of the cold. But during the, the cheese season, you can go to the store and they cut you a slice, they put it in a glass bowl to take home, and then they'll put a piece of aluminum foil on top. And as you take it home, you can hear the maggots jumping from the cheese and it's like pinging the aluminum. And I just absolutely love this like very kind of visceral description of the cheese. And so they decided to design um, the blade of the knife in the shape of the wings that the, the fly, this, this uh, fly ends up becoming and so these kind of beautiful stories working with beautiful like local craftsmen are really important but on the other hand um, you know we worked with an architecture firm in Johannesburg called Counterspace and they designed this comb for cleaning Mopani worms which are local to um, specific cultures within South Africa and um, because it was just a concept we ended up having it 3D printed in New York City. So there's, it's a different kind of craft, but it's like a you know technologically enabled craft to uh, kind of create objects out of thin air. And it's, a, it's pretty exciting to be able to see both of those side by side in a story around contemporary design. And also, and maybe one of the reasons it stuck out for me chimes with something else that you said yesterday, which is the only thing for sale in this magazine is our ideas. Yeah. So actually, in, in this feature, you were aping the, 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 the norm in mm -hmm. uh, these like, magazines where you're like selling an aspirational like, idea, mm -hmm. but you were doing it for a very specific purpose. Absolutely, and we worked with a photographer, Corey Olson, who shoot, he's a still life photographer, a product photographer, and he shoots um, everything from uh, perfume bottles and, and, and purses to 
you know, books for the New York Times. And so um, it's it's really such an incredible experience to work with artists like Corey who work within a commercial space and who can are actually taking their uh, hard-won skills and applying it um, and working with us um, to create this kind of fantasy space where... Um, the objects that we've created, which are not for sale, uh, get the same kind of treatment as like a $5,000 handbag. And all of this is, I mean, it's obviously completely fascinating and like obviously I love it. I was really pleased that we were able to send it out. It's also really important to you that this is not just an interesting hobby. This, this has to be, or you, or you want this to be a proper, sustainable, ongoing business. Beyond the obvious, why is that important? I think that as a founder, um, you know, this project has been a kind of the mo what I call my most expensive hobby ever for the past four years. And um, I feel very passionately about it. But I also feel like this topic really deserves my full attention. Um, the more this past year is uh, I spent working on mold full time and we were able to publish two magazines um, you know literally a year from the time we launched our Kickstarter campaign to support the magazine I'm here in Munich with you Steve um, you know through stack we were able to share it with like you know three over 3,000 people and I think that it goes to show just how timely this topic is and how beyond just me kind of banging on my pots and pans to be like, this is really urgent, how it really resonates with a larger audience. Um, and my hope is that I can continue working on this, um, continue kind of creating a platform for these ideas and hopefully engage people beyond just designers, but, you know, work with, um, you know, the UN who's creating these reports to actually uh, share these ideas in a way that um, you know normal everyday people would have access to the information. So, issue one and two done in the bag. What can you tell us about issue three? Um, we're working on issue three right now. We're almost done with the editorial piece of it um, and going into design. But it's about food waste, which is a very timely topic. Um, there's a lot of chefs around the world who are kind of engaging with this question right now, but. Um, and also a lot of entrepreneurs, people who have some really interesting ideas. But what I've really found is that there's the missing piece is design. Like, where does design fit into the conversation around food waste? And so I'm really, really excited about the issue because we are talking about ideas that um, are tangible, that are scalable, um, that have real impact, and that are sexy. You know, like, and I think that's kind of the beauty about design is that these are solutions that are aspirational that they are the people designers think about people's kind of um, normal everyday workflow and think about how do we seamlessly fit into this so this the stories that we're telling include um, an eth uh, architectural eth ethnographer who talks about how do cities use food waste as a resource um, we talk we have one of the best chefs in the world writing a story for us about how the role of chefs in the future is really to combine ethics and aesthetics. 
Um, we also have the vi Vice President of Innovation for Feeding America, which is the United States' largest food surplus diversion program, um, talking about the importance of prototyping uh, de design solutions for feeding hungry Americans. Um, and so all of these ideas, I think, are really exciting and really interesting. Oh, one, another story we're telling that my co-editor, <laughs> I got so excited, I got so excited. <laughs> my co-editor is writing a story about refrigeration and do we really need it? <laughs> and so, like, he's really looking, he's recently moved into a houseboat in London, and so he doesn't have room for a real refrigerator, so it's really changed the way that he eats. And so he's interviewed, um, you know, a, a really reputable uh, refrigeration brand is going to talk a little bit about what does food storage of the future look like. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And when can we expect to see this? Uh, in the spring summer of this year. All right. Well, um, good luck with it. Thank you, Steve. Looking forward to seeing it. You'll definitely get a coffee. <laughs> and, and thanks again for coming over. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a pleasure. All right, that's it for this week. As you can hear, Lin Yi is just brimming over with stories and that exuberance is writ large all over the pages of Mold. It's a brilliant read, so if you haven't seen it before, do check it out at thisismold.com. And once again, if you're not already a Stack subscriber, please do think about signing up. We deliver a different independent magazine every month, guaranteeing a fresh shot of ideas and inspiration delivered through your door. If you go to stackmagazines.com and use the code podcast, you can save 10% off our normal prices. I don't do much of this advertising stuff on the podcast because it feels a bit weird and embarrassing, but I'm basically just getting over my own Englishness because at the end of the day, it's the subscribers who allow us to pay the bills. So if you like these podcasts, please do sign up. Okay, I'm going to go and wash my mouth out now. If all goes well, next week we'll have a conversation coming from the Bruno Biennial in the Czech Republic. So if you want to make sure you hear that and all the fantastic design that they've got lined up over there, search for Stack Magazines in SoundCloud or iTunes and we'll drop it into your phone as soon as it's ready. Thank you very much for listening and we'll be back again next week.